Fleming Rutledge, if you don't know who she is, you, you should find out who she is. Um, she's been an amazing voice, incredible voice in the church for decades. And she has um, really pretty recently become known for a lot of the sermons that she's written and given over the years. And so she's assembling a lot of these sermons and putting them in book form. And so she has this book on Advent that's incredible. But she talks about how Advent is one of the easiest seasons to preach in that there's an ease that comes in preaching during Advent because all of our days are lived in Advent. Um, We think of Advent as this season leading up to Christmas, a sort of precedent to Christmas. But really, it's here at the beginning of the church calendar to set the precedent for the whole rest of the year, not just for these couple of weeks leading up to Christmas. But there's supposed to be something formational, informational, something about this season that shapes us to be Advent people. Now, what does that mean? To be an Advent person is to be somebody who longs for the coming of Christ. Now, we are in a unique position in the 21st century because we know that Christ has come once. We've experienced Christ breaking through in our own lives. But still, we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. And so we know not all things are right. We know that a glimpse of that kingdom that is going to set all things to rights has happened, and we're now hoping that it's going to come again and set all things to rights once and for all. Fleming Rutledge tells a a very somber story about what Advent is like. And I went back and forth. I debated on whether or not I was going to share this story, but I think it's appropriate to kind of set the tone for Advent generally, maybe not necessarily for this joy Sunday that we're celebrating. But she tells the story of a recording that was released about a year after 9-11. And the recording was from the radios of the firemen who were climbing the South Tower. And she talks about this incredible professionalism, just this very mechanical process that they had as they went from floor to floor to floor, telling people what equipment needed to go where, making sure they got the right amount of men in the right place, and telling people what to do, giving them instructions. There's just this calm sort of demeanor about them, even though we know there's worlds of drama happening in each one of their hearts. So they climb and they climb and they climb, and they finally get to the sky lobby at the top of the South Tower where these people had been trapped for hours. And she tells the story about how these firemen break in to this sky lobby and the sense of relief that you can sense, even in this recording, from the people who have been waiting there. And just imagine it, right, that in this moment where you think everything is lost, In comes breaking the fire marshal and the fire chief and all of their men ready to do their jobs. So there's this great sense of relief that happens. Two minutes later, the South Tower collapsed. And Fleming Rutledge would say, this is what Advent is. It's knowing that the moment of your deliverance and the moment of your destruction are happening all at the same time. This is Advent. We know the world is getting put back together, but we know the world is still very broken. And so we are people of Advent. We are signs. We are posts pointing to the kingdom that is going to come. Amen. 
Today's the third Sunday of Advent, as we've mentioned, and it is the Sunday of joy. It's supposed to give us a bit of a reprieve, a bit of a break in this dark, sort of somber season of Advent. I don't know if you've ever thought of Advent in those terms. Traditionally, the themes of Advent were not hope and peace and joy and faith like we've known them to be. Traditionally, the themes of Advent were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So you get to the third Sunday of Advent, and it's heaven, and you're celebrating, there's joy, and then you head back into hell on the fourth week. This is the kind of rhythm that Advent invites us to participate in. So we go from these dark and stormy penitential moments of this season to a day like today, to Godet Sunday, to the Sunday of joy. But I think it's important for us to talk about joy in the middle of a season like Advent, because so often I think joy can seem like a manufactured sort of thing. It's a feeling that we conjure up rather than a posture that we take for living well, for living a joy-filled life. So to talk about joy, I want to take us to maybe an unusual place today, to the book of James. James is an odd piece of literature. Um, It's not really a letter. It's not really a sermon. Any of our kind of genres that we could come up with, it doesn't really fit. And there's been a lot of controversy around the book of James. Um, It was one of the last books in our New Testament to be canonized, to be included into the New Testament. About 400 years go by before they decide, okay, let's include James in the New Testament. Uh, We're not really sure when it was written, It could have been written very, very early, one of the first books of the New Testament to be written. It could have been written very, very late, one of the last books to be written. But what is agreed upon is that it was written during this time of conflict. Whether it was at the beginning of the conflict or the end of the conflict, we're not sure. But here's the conflict, is that it was this sect of Jews with an unusual set of practices who are now becoming followers of Jesus. They're becoming Christians. These people who know themselves to be sons and daughters of Abraham are now also committed to the person and the way of Christ. They're living in Jerusalem. They're committed to the teachings of Moses, to the temple, to the Torah. But they're simultaneously proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And this creates enormous instability, both within the church and outside of the church. It creates a lot of instability, especially as the world of Christianity started to spread. And so we read about this happening in books like Acts and in other early Christian literature. But James, this letter, again, either written at the beginning or the end of this controversy, it's ironic because it's written as a peacemaking letter, a peacemaking book. And ironically, it's one of the most debated texts that we have in all of Scripture. So you have about 400 years to go by, then they finally decide to put it in the Bible. They agree, okay, it can, it can go. It passes the muster. And then several hundred years happen, and then we have the Reformation. And Martin Luther pins his 95 Theses. And again, all of these books are up for debate. And when it comes to James, if you've ever read anything about uh, the Reformation and Luther and how he felt about James, he calls it an epistle of straw the straw epistle. 
And they decide to keep it in the canon, but he says, read it cautiously because there's no gospel in it, right? So in some circles, it gets debated even to this day. Should James even be in the Bible? Is it okay that it's there? Is it not okay? And there's a lot of controversy around the book itself. And here's, here's what I'm trying to say. The controversy of the book of James hinges on this question. Is James in opposition to Paul? That's the question. Because Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. James tells us we are saved by works. So who's right? Right? This is the story. But I do think that it's a book with a word for us today. I don't know if you noticed, but nothing really happened on the news this week. Um, Pretty quiet, kind of a whoop and wharf kind of week. I don't know. Nothing major, certainly. Um, and it's been this way for a while, right? Like, pretty calm. No big foundation-shaking controversies. Um, pretty cut and dry these last several years. Of course not. We know this. Of course not. Uh, we are living in one of the greatest upheavals that most of us have seen in our lifetime. And so this is why I think that James is a book for us today. I think it has a word for us today about what it is like to live as peacemaking people in a world of controversy, in a world that can't agree on anything. I think James offers us a word of peace and a word of joy, but I think it comes to us in some unusual ways. James is a book of wisdom, but it's not the kind of wisdom that you and I would necessarily gravitate toward. It offers us wisdom like not all faith is good faith. Not all conviction is holy conviction. Not everything that we feel strongly about is, in fact, true. And not everything that we think of as normal is, in fact, what God has imagined for the world. And what seems right to God may not actually seem right to us. This is the kind of wisdom that James offers us. And particularly now, we need this kind of wisdom, a kind of wisdom that's a little less sure of ourselves, a kind of wisdom that is a little suspicious of ourselves. And I think someone like James wants to tell us in the midst of conflict, maybe what we all need to do is take a step back and reflect. What James wants is for all of us to move toward a kind of patient attentiveness, a joyful endurance as we wait, not for everyone else to change their minds. We're not waiting on everyone else to change their minds so they finally agree with us, but we wait for the Lord to show up. So in that way, James is really a book for Advent. It's a a book about living the Advent life. It's a book for us in the 21st century as Christians. Um, Our daughter is six years old, and one of the most fascinating things in the world to her is the concept of the ice cream truck. (laughs) That there is a person just driving around offering you ice cream if you happen to catch them, is like blowing her mind. But 
she doesn't wait well. So like in the summer, we know, okay, it's like 100 degrees outside. We can hear the guy driving through the neighborhood somewhere. If she could pick up on that, she would wait on our driveway for the guy to drive by, but she never does. She just goes inside. She's aware he's out there somewhere. But by the time he shows up, we miss him because we're inside watching TV or whatever it is we're doing in the summer trying to stay cool. So we miss it. That's not the kind of waiting James is offering us. There's a way of waiting that just misses the thing that we're waiting on because we're not paying attention. We also have a son who is 15 months old. And as any of you with little kids know, they do the best, cutest, most hilarious things right up until the point you pull out your camera. And as soon as you pull the thing out to capture that moment, it's gone, right? It's like we scare them in our waiting because our waiting is trying to force something to happen. None of us do this patient, attentive thing well. When we talk about the themes of Advent, these themes of longing and waiting and hoping, it's easy to assume that the point is to do nothing. But that's not the kind of waiting that James calls us to. We just don't know how to wait attentively. We tend to lose attention. We get lost in our own thoughts. We never get still enough in the first place to allow the Spirit to steal up on us in the way she tends to do. But James would call us to a life of waiting and patience that isn't passive, but it is inactive in some ways. It's not resigned to do nothing, but it is committed to not doing anything that would keep us from noticing, missing what's coming to us. So the question for us on this Joy Sunday is, what does it look like to live like that? To live in a way that is patient and attentive, waiting for the Lord to break through in a way that feels like joy to us? That's the question for today. Let's look at James 5, starting in verse 7. You won't have it on the screen, so you just got to listen to it. Imagine that. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord is coming near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So notice James' point. If you are going to live well in time of conflict, you have to learn to live like the farmer who waits. In a lot of evangelical traditions, in the traditions that shaped the churches that you and I have known, this image was used, this image of the farmer, but in the exact opposite way. In the Industrial Revolution, this idea of evangelism, of sharing your faith, became about technique and process, much like an assembly line. In Charles Finney's lectures on revival, he appeals to the farmer as the one who has complete control over his destiny. He would say that the farmer doesn't just passively wait for a crop. He goes and he tills the soil, he plants the seeds, he waters the fields, cares for it so that he knows what kind of crop he's going to get and exactly when he's going to get it. 
So in this framework, the farmer is the one in control. The farmer is the one bending nature to his will. And most of us would applaud them as right. This is how the world should work. We should go out, we should put our hands to work, and we should manipulate nature, and we should be bending it to our own will so that we can see what happens when we actually put our hands to something. We applaud this kind of posture as right, but many of us have been raised in traditions with a spirituality that thinks like that, and the fact is, that isn't really farming at all. That's not agriculture. That's machinery. That's assembly line. That's industry. If we load in all the right information, if we learn the right principles, if we have all the right doctrine and all the right theology, if we say the right prayers, organize all the data in the right way, if we do all of this, we know exactly what we're going to get out of it. This is more like pulling levers and turning knobs than it is planting a seed. And we're not called to be machines. We are called to be seeds that happen to plant other seeds. Sure, the farmer does have some responsibility. The farmer does have to plow and plant and have some knowledge of how this whole process works, of what kind of seeds to plant at which time of year and how much water they have to get. But at the end of the day, the farmer is simply yielding to the nature of things, to the way that things happen to work. In other words, the farmer submits himself or herself to the way that things are, not manipulating things to work for them. Do you see the difference? What makes a farmer a good farmer is to know how things work and then being patient with them, waiting for them. The farmer is patient, James says, with the crop. And what if... We've always been trying to make the nature of things work for us, bending it to our will, what we want, what we think, what we consider good news, what we're comfortable with, when what God wants us to learn is how to give up our own right, yield ourselves to the nature of the kingdom, the, things, the way that things work in God's economy and not the economy that we've built for ourselves. We happen to see this all the time. Uh, evangelism can just get turned into some coercive technique. I'm sure you've all experienced it. When I was in high school, we used to go, um, I think it was on Friday nights, and we called it something like Faith Blitz or something, Friday Night Blitz, whatever it was. It was silly. But the idea was like you would go to the football games that were happening around town, or you would go to the malls, and we would have these little things with the right questions to ask people so that we could get them to see that like, oh, God is working in your life, and have you accepted him in your heart, and here's this prayer. And, you know, we talked to so many people. And was there real transformation in any of them? Maybe. I don't know. But... The idea that we had was if we had the right coercive technique, if we had the right rhetorical arguments, maybe when I show up into the situation with all these tools in my tool belt, you will accept Jesus into your heart. Does this sound familiar? But I don't think this is a real faithful image of evangelism. I don't know that God works this way. Sometimes, of course. But as a matter of course, I don't think this is the best way to spread the good news. 
part of evangelism is more about recognizing what God is already doing in people's lives. Long before we ever show up, and we just simply yield ourselves to that process, letting the crop grow and struggle and yield a harvest in its own time. This is where I think a, maybe a more faithful image of evangelism is not like the Friday night blitz thing, but more like a midwife. What if we treated it more like being a midwife? A midwife is just there with the one who is pregnant to help her through the process of giving birth to something new. The midwife encourages, the midwife guides and supports and comforts the one who is laboring. But the midwife doesn't conceive the child, doesn't give the child, doesn't birth the child. It's just there witnessing to the moment, guiding, comforting, encouraging. And at no point in the process does the midwife ever jump on the table and be like, you're doing it wrong. Here, let me show you how. This doesn't happen. I hope it never happens. I think this is the kind of posture we ought to take with one another. Suspicious that God is doing things in our lives and involved with you, maybe in ways that you haven't noticed yet. And just being willing to help sniff it out. I think that's the posture we ought to hold with one another. The question that James is asking is, are we going to live in a way that is patient with one another as Christ is birthed in them over time? That's the kind of patience James is talking about. There's this line in James where James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. I think it's easy for us to assume that the coming of the Lord is like the be-all, end-all, second coming of the Lord when everything is put to rights. And there is that, but I don't think that's what James has in mind when he says this. I think James is talking about, he says in another part of the book, he says, draw near to God. You all know this. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. And this isn't a technique. This isn't a trick that if we draw near to God, God's going to draw near to us. That's not the point of it. The point of what he's saying, what James is picturing, what he's imagining, isn't the end-all coming of the Lord. What he's imagining is the daily coming of the Lord. That the advent of Jesus is present to us at every turn of our lives. So be patient with one another until the Lord shows up. Not in a million years, not in a hundred years, be patient with one another until the Lord comes in that moment. Because as you're patient with one another, as the Lord shows up and you draw near to God, you draw near to one another, God will be in the midst of you. This is what James means when he says to be patient with one another. So I think in this way, we would do better to be more like Advent Sherlock's to be people who are deeply suspicious. We're looking for any sign, any clue that Christ might just actually be on you somewhere. Where can I find it? What is God doing in your life? What have you rubbed up against lately that just reeks of what God has for you? Can I sniff it out? Can I find it? So I can help you see it.
James says that this is what we have to be patient for, discerningly attentive, that when we've done nothing but pay attention, when we've listened to one another, offered one another the ministry of the ear, that we are able to recognize Jesus has been here all along. He has been at work in both my life and in the life of my neighbor. So when James says, draw near to God, God will draw near to you, it's not a trick, it's not a technique, it's not another tool for our tool belt. It is a promise. It's an invitation to see with particular eyes and to hear with particular ears what Christ is already doing in the life of my neighbor. So James cuts straight to it. You want to know what patience is. Patience is about what you do with the people around you who give you trouble. One of the most meaningful moments for me over the past few years happened to be in 2016. And my wife and I and our daughter, we were living in a place that was not Tulsa. And it was during the election year. And we all know how crazy 2016 got. And the church we were attending, the pastor one Sunday, uh, took a risk, and I'm glad he did. And he led us through a portion of the service where he put on the screens a picture of Donald Trump next to a picture of Hillary Clinton and just asked us the question, what feelings are arising in you right now? What kind of emotions are you feeling? Are you feeling hope for one of them or for the other? Are you feeling a sense of dread for one of them or for the other? What are you feeling? How are you processing? And then he went to another slide, and it was a picture of these two babies, maybe about 18 months old. And it was Donald Trump, and it was Hillary Clinton. And he said, now take all those negative feelings that you have been experiencing, those things that are welling up inside of you, and just try to place it on that. These little babies with big, toothless grins on their faces, smiling and laughing at something, just full of innocence, full of joy. You can't do it. You can't take even the positive things that you have felt about one candidate or the other, it's impossible to still place it on something as innocent as a child. And then he went back to the first picture. He said, how do you see them differently? Are you still full of anger and bitterness, resentment? Or can you be patient with them? Can you trust that somewhere along the line, maybe something happened, but there's still goodness to be found? This is the kind of patient attentiveness that James is calling us to, to realize that people are not just who they are in the moment, but they are a world of experiences and maybe traumas and pain and suffering and joy and hope. We're so much more complex so maybe there are people today who cause hope to die in you. Maybe they're public figures. Maybe they're people that you know personally. 
But I do believe that it's when we can see them differently that we've learned patience. Again, we don't do patience well, primarily because we live in a world that's overwhelmed by choices. This is why James says not to grumble with one another. For us, grumbling with one another means that we just change the situation. That if I'm in a space and you're in a space and you're grumbling because I'm there, I'll just leave. If we happen to be in a church together and you start to grumble because of what happens, you can just leave. There's a dozen churches within a stone's throw of here. So you just change your situation. If you go to a restaurant and you didn't appreciate how they treated you, you can go to its competitor. If you're watching television and you don't happen to like what's on or all of a sudden a commercial pops up, you can change the situation. We are overwhelmed by choices. So we never have to learn patience. We never have to learn attentiveness. A lot of our lives works this way. But I don't think you can live the Christian life that way. Any form of the Christian life that doesn't teach you patience isn't really a form of the Christian life at all. What we have to have nurtured in us is the patience that leads to an openness to what God is doing in the world apart from my own will and my own effort. Be patient with one another. Wait for eyes to see and ears to hear how Christ is present. And we will find that it's playing out in the world in surprising ways. That what God is doing in the world is always the thing that we're least expecting. In this same letter, James mentions the story of Abraham laying his son Isaac on the altar. We can see this in Genesis 22. And when we read about this story, Abraham and Isaac, they're headed to the mountain where they're going to make the sacrifice, and they're trudging along. And all of a sudden, Isaac's like, hold on a sec. Um, We're going to make a sacrifice? Yes? Where's the lamb? And Abraham's just like, well, God will provide the lamb. You'll be fine. God will provide the lamb. And then, like, cut to Abraham laying Isaac on the altar. And he's probably still like, hey, where's that lamb, Dad? And what does the text tell us? The angel stops Abraham, and then he finds a ram in the thicket. So they take the ram, they sacrifice the ram, and then Abraham says that on this mountain, God has fulfilled what he promised. And did you catch anything? Isaac says, where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. And then what does he find? A ram. Not the thing that Abraham was expecting to find, but he still receives it as God's purpose. Here's the point. When you're waiting on God to act, you're waiting on God to act. We can't conceive, we don't have the imagination for what God is going to do, but we, we don't even have the passion, the creativity, the foresight for it, but we can trust that whatever God is going to bring forth will be good. We have to trust and be patient, knowing we can't anticipate exactly what that good will be. And part of living with that kind of patience is recognizing that even when we know God is going to act, God is going to act in ways that are better than we could imagine. 
Yes, God is going to provide not a lamb, not your son, but a ram that's caught in the thicket. When God acts, God acts in ways that we could not have anticipated. But that doesn't mean that it isn't God. In fact, I think that that is the sign that it is God and not our own kind of wish fulfillment. But again, we don't do this well because it's not obvious to us the ways that God is acting. We saw this in our gospel reading today with John the Baptist sitting in prison, sending word to Jesus and saying, are you really the one that we've been waiting for? Are you sure you're the guy? Or should we be looking for someone else? Why is he asking these questions? Because he's stuck in prison. Here he is, the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, the one who says to Jesus that he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. And now he's sitting in prison and he's going, I don't know if this is the right guy. I think when God doesn't show up in our lives the way we expect, or the way that we expect that God ought to, we start asking these same questions. Should we be looking for someone else? Are you really the one? Fleming Rutledge, again, has this line in her sermons that she comes back to over and over again. She says, the signs of the kingdom remain hidden. She says the signs were hidden in Jesus' time, and they are still hidden now. John the Baptist didn't expect this kind of Messiah, one who would be so obscure, so humble, and then in the end, so rejected. We expect power, someone to fight for us, to stand up for us, to defend the things that we believe in. We expect victory. We expect triumph in our Messiah. But Jesus sends word back to John. He says, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. John would have heard these words and understood them to be the prophecy given in Isaiah. And Jesus announcing to John that he has come to fulfill those things. But even we have to acknowledge, looking back, that as Jesus says this to John, that the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the dead are being raised, the lepers are cleansed, they were really only taking place in a few places and only happening to a few people. They remained hidden signs of the kingdom. Not all the blind see, not all the dead are raised, not all the poor have heard the good news, but the kingdom keeps working this way in hidden, unexpected ways. The mystery of it all, which is God's activity in the world, is that these tiny signs of faithfulness and love and hope and mercy, these tiny signs happening to a few people in a few places, we are a few people in a few places. These are the signposts to the fullness of the kingdom that will come when Christ comes. 
part of this patient endurance, the attentiveness that God wants to stir in all of us is an attentiveness that when God brings the harvest, it may not be, and in fact, it will probably not be what we expected it to be. It will be better if we know how to accept it, if we have the willingness to receive it as what God is doing in the world and not ourselves. Can you learn to care for the weak? Can you learn to be patient enough to hold your tongue? Can you learn to resist your desires, both good and bad? These are the questions that James would ask us today. I want to close with this quote from Rowan Williams. Of course, I don't think I can ever talk without mentioning Rowan Williams if you've been here for any amount of time. He says, trust this. Live in Jesus' company and you will become a citizen of a new world, the world in which God's rule has arrived. You will still be living in the everyday world in which many other powers claim to be ruling, but you will have become free of them, free to cooperate or not, depending on how far they allow you to be ruled by God. And what you do And what you say will become a sign of what is coming. Your life will give a foretaste of God's rule. So sanctuary, may we be people of patience, slow to speak, quick to listen. And when the day comes when we finally see what God is up to, may we receive it fully, surprises and all, with joy. Amen.